Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everyone. Just a quick note before we begin. Unchained is doing its annual survey. Head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2022 to tell us how you think we're doing and how we could improve, whether it be on the podcast, in the newsletter, or in our premium offering. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Again, the link is surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2022. And you can also check the show notes for the link. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is November 18th, 2022 episode of Unchained. Unchained Daily is now on Substack for your recap of news and market updates. Plus, you can now upgrade to Unchained Premium, which includes new perks directly through Substack. Visit unchainedcrypto.substack.com to subscribe. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Avalanche was built to provide a robust Web3 infrastructure with flexible tools, so you can build anything you want, any way you want. Visit avox.network to discover how you can. DeFi Saver is an all-in-one management app with unique automation options for top lending protocols such as Aave, Maker, Liquity, and Compound. Check them out on Ethereum Mainnet, Arbitrum, and Optimism. Today's guest is Wasi Lawyer, a lawyer specializing in restructuring and insolvency. Welcome again, Wasi. Hi, Laura. I'm glad to be back. It's unusual to have a guest back right after their last appearance, but after the first declaration from new FTX CEO John Ray in the company's bankruptcy case, we definitely need to unpack this. For listeners who didn't get to read or hear about this yesterday, here is the section that set the tone for the rest of the document. Ray starts by saying, I have over 40 years of legal and restructuring experience, and he references his participation as the chief restructuring officer in what he calls several of the largest corporate failures in history. And here he mentions a few, including most famously Enron. Then he says that almost all of these situations were, quote, characterized by defects of some sort of internal controls, regulatory compliance, human resources, and systems integrity. Now here's the money quote. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. Wasi, when you read the document, did you have the same reaction? Is the FTX bankruptcy quite possibly worse than many of the most notorious bankruptcy cases in history? I mean, can you really blame CZ from walking away from trying to buy this dumpster file? <laughs> um, yeah, no, this, this, 
it's 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 kind of insane, right? Because um, like two weeks ago, like like genuinely, um, everyone looked at FTX and Lumina as you know untouchable, and you kind of thought that they were just giga geniuses, arming every inefficiency, making billions of dollars, stop hunting us, etc. But they are not, and the uh, controls are terrible. Um, the, uh, the, there's a there's a there's a quote I kind of want to pick out here when he when when John Ray goes through every single balance sheet of the sort of four silos that he's that that he's identified and in every single one of those financial statements he says however because this balance sheet was produced while the debtors were controlled by mr bank and freed i do not have confidence in it and therefore the information therein may not be accurate as of the date stated so effectively for large bits of this filing he's basically telling us this is what we've been told this is not audited this is what sbf gave me i have no faith in this whatsoever <laughs> Yeah, that line stuck out at me as well. You know, I mean, it's sort of a more bureaucratic and polite way of saying, do not trust this person. And another thing that shocked me was, you're right. So for people who haven't read it, basically, he divides the enterprise that's going into bankruptcy into kind of what he calls four silos. And it's like some of the different corporate entities. Then what he does is he breaks out the assets and liabilities of each. Interestingly, I noticed uh, every time he presents those balances, he will write, balances of customer crypto assets deposited were not recorded as assets on the balance sheet and are not presented. And it would be in bold and underlined. <laughs> so yes, can you break that down for listeners? What does that mean? Um, it means that when when SBF said, oh, we have more than enough uh, um, assets to cover all the liabilities and all the customer deposits, he didn't even know what the customer deposits were because he just straight up wasn't recording them. So when you deposit money into the FTX, deposit into the FTX, it should have recorded an FTX, just wasn't. So he was literally just talking about his ass. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this puts comments around things like internally poorly labeled fiat account. In new light, because essentially, um, as we saw in his text messages with the Vox reporter, there were no um, separation of accounts when it came to Alameda and um, FTX. When customers deposited money into FTX, they were actually literally just putting it right into Alameda's bank account, which I mean, that it, it like that just absolutely blows my mind. There was no attempt whatsoever to keep customers money safe and uh, some notion that they might give the money back to them. At least, you know, I mean, granted, I'm not in SUF's head, but based on that, that would be maybe a logical conclusion. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, just to sort of backtrack a bit, the four different silos which have been identified is essentially for in layman's terms, FTX US, FTX International, uh, the Ventures Portfolio, and Alameda. So that's the four silos that's identified. And he's still in the process of, identif of, of actually figuring out what's going on. He has shown us the uh, balance sheet, which he says is not reliable whatsoever, but that's probably a starting point. Interesting point to note is in the US you know, balance sheet, which we're told unreliable, whatever, um, there's still a, a line called customer custodial funds, which is probably good for customers if there's certain funds that are being kept in custody, whereas you don't see the same in the FTX international um, balance sheet, which Again, is um, we've been told is not reliable. 
Okay, so the so F, are you saying that FTX US customers have a greater chance, or or even that it's very likely that they'll have a better claim on their assets and maybe even yeah, I think I think it's I think it's it is my view, and it has been from the start that FTX US is in a probably much better state, strangely enough, because of regulations um, than FTX International, because like we discussed previously, Laura, all the degen stuff was happening, all the degen stuff was happening between International and um, Alameda. Okay. And so for some of those other groups, Alameda, Alameda Research, though, anybody, I guess, who had loaned money to them or uh, the Ventures Silo or the dot-com group, what would you say are um, more likely outcomes for those creditors? To be honest, we, we still we still don't know. It's it's obviously it's not looking good. Um, FTX, the dot com silo um, we're referring to is obviously the FTX international silo. Um, apparently, there's two point two billion um, of assets, which is reasonable amount of assets. We have no idea what the customer liabilities are, so we have to look at that. In terms of what sort of uh, monies you can get in from Alameda, you know, like we're identified on the structure chart that seems to be in the company loan. Um, you know, maybe you get some recovery there. But again, we have, it's it's almost too early to say at this point because um, the sort of new CEO is still going through the books. He's still trying to figure out what the position is. And he's sort of, and he's actually uh, mentioned um, that the accounts were so poorly capped that they basically have to start from scratch all over again. Um, to sort of cite from paragraph 52, because of historical cash management failures, the debtors do not yet know the exact amount of cash that the FTS group held at the point they filed the chapter 11. Just so I understand this first day declaration, was there some deadline to post this or why wouldn't he just wait until he had some of that information? I mean, it's a first day declaration, right? So um, I'm not a US bankruptcy lawyer, as you know, I'm a UK bankruptcy lawyer, done a bit of chapter 11s, um, couldn't recite the actual US uh, codes to you. But I think uh, but generally what happens is that you kind of get a sort of early statement from the, the, the new debtor that, that in possession is the use. Um, yeah, that in possession. Okay. So let's pull out a few of the other um, maybe shocking details. I don't know. You can tell me. But some things that stuck out at me were, for instance, that the company used an unsecured group email account as the root user to access confidential private keys and critically sensitive data for the FTX group companies around the world. There was the absence of daily reconciliation of positions on the blockchain the use of software to conceal the misuse of customer funds. That one, to my mind, has alarm bells around it. The secret exemption of Alameda from certain aspects of FTX.com's auto liquidation protocol, which, okay, a bombshell. And then the absence of independent governance between Alameda and FTX. Do you want to, can you just comment on any of those? Um, I mean, the comment on all of those is the same, which is what the fuck. <laughs> it, it's like any one of them on your own, you would be like, what the heck is going on here? But all of them together, Jesus. So Alameda gets to degen and trade without fear of being liquidated by the engine. Everyone has access to private keys via some sort of unsecured group email. Um, you get a backdoor, although at, at this point, given how, you know, Given how everything's been done, it looks like he was literally just shuffling cash out of front door straight into Alameda. But the, the back door that allows you to co-mingle customer funds, insane. Everything's just insane, right? And that's kind of why, you know, it's a burning dumpster fire. 
I just almost have no words um, the more that I learned. One last bit that seemed it raised my eyebrows was referencing two of the audits that he was able to find. One was from a company, Armanino, which he said it's a firm that he's professionally familiar with. Then he says that the second audit was by Prager Metis, with which he says he is not familiar. And then he says, quote, whose website indicates that they are the first ever CPA firm to officially open its metaverse headquarters in the metaverse platform Decentraland. <laughs> I mean, I'm, so, I'm sometimes actually asked about oh, what sort of audit that was what sort of content should I use, you know, just from people, just for people in the space. And sometimes I, I, I tend to say, look, just go for the more legitimate ones. Because when it comes down to it, someone looks at, because, you know, some people say that, you know, accounting and auditing is um, an art rather than a science, right? Some people are perhaps more creative than others or perhaps more negligent than others. But it's quite clear here um, that new CEO, Mr. Ray, clearly does not have any faith in the integrity of financial systems that's been provided, which is why I said, can you really blame CZ from walking away with it after looking at the documents for like 30 minutes? (laughs) All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk about another wrinkle in the bankruptcy case. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. For years, you've heard about the promise of blockchain technology, and yet high fees, security risks, and unreliable chains have been the reality. It doesn't have to be this way. Avalanche believes innovators deserve Web3 infrastructure they can count on, with the flexibility and tooling to build anything they want, any way they want. Chosen by global leaders like KKR, Deloitte, Lemonade, and MasterCard, Avalanche has built a strong reputation as one of the world's fastest, most reliable blockchains. To learn more about Avalanche, visit avox.network or follow on Twitter at avalancheavox. Explore the platform millions are using for its speed, stability, and scalability. Avalanche, create without limits. DeFi Saver is an all-in-one management app for the top lending protocols on Ethereum, including Aave, Maker, Liquity, and Compound. They have dedicated protocol dashboards with options for quick leverage adjustment and self-liquidation, as well as automated liquidation protection options with stop-loss, trailing stop, and automated unwinding options. They also have loan shifting tools for collateral and debt swaps, and instantly moving positions between different protocols. You can try DeFi Saver today on Ethereum, Arbitrum, and Optimism. Back to my conversation with Wasi Lawyer. Another bit of news that got revealed today is that FTX's Bahamas unit, FTX Digital Markets, is seeking protection from creditors in the U.S. under Chapter 15 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. And the way that Reuters describe it is that this allows a foreign debtor to shield assets in the country. And they say non-U.S. companies use the measure to block creditors who want to file lawsuits or tie up assets in the United States. What would you say is the significance of this move? Right. So this is actually far more interesting to me than the first day declaration. Not because the first day declaration isn't interesting. It, it's, it's got a lot of zingers in there. But um, in terms of information, there's, there's not that much simply because it's all unverified. But this development is a very big one and a very, very interesting one to me. Because, and, and, and I can say, look, I've done restructurings of the insolvencies a lot. I've never really seen something like this, um, especially because of what's in this um, emergency motion that's been filed by um, FTX, i.e. The, the new CEO of FTX. So just to provide a bit of background, Chapter 11 
is a bankruptcy proceeding in the US. When you enter into Chapter 11, you get a worldwide moratorium, which says that um, your creditors around the world can't enforce against you, and you have time to reorganize and sort of uh, reorganize your your assets. Um, you know whether it's just to liquidate, whether it's to sell it on, basically to realize value for the stakeholders involved. Good. That's Chapter 11. What's Chapter 15? Chapter 15 is a recognition proceeding where you recognize a bankruptcy proceeding that's happened in another part of the world. Now, um, you can have multiple bankruptcy proceedings in different parts of the world, of course, but you can only have one, what they call a main proceeding, which is the main bankruptcy. So what we're having here is a clash. We're having a jurisdictional battle between the US and the Bahamas because the Bahamas uh, the Bahamas entity has been put into provisional liquidation, which is also a bankruptcy process where um, professionals have been appointed, uh, professionals taking control of the, of the company, and their, their, their role as provisional liquidators is they're going to preserve the assets of the company to see if there's anything you can do with it, how to liquidate it, how to restructure it if possible. So that's happening in the Bahamas. But at the same time, the same thing's happening in the U.S., and, and, and what's happened in the chapter 15 is that the guys in the Bahamas have gone and filed in the U.S. in a different court, uh, the State District of New York, rather than the District of Delaware, which is where the chapter 11 is held, to recognize the Bahamas proceedings. And if you recognize the Bahamas proceedings, that means that you are saying, all right, all the assets in the Bahamas can be sort of adjudicated according to, you know, the, the process in the Bahamas. But that doesn't, that doesn't fly, right? Because, wait, you're kind of trying to educate the same assets in the U.S. at the same time. So that's what I mean by a jurisdictional battle is going on between two jurisdictions as to who gets to control perhaps not the whole process, but at least part of the process. And from what we can tell, valuable parts of the process. Well, okay, wait. So unpack this a little bit because the first filing, the Chapter 11, deals with certain entities, but this second filing deals with a separate entity, the Bahamas unit. So I don't really understand how there can be a jurisdictional battle when you, so I understand when you say there can only be one main proceeding, but in this case where it's different entities, how would that be considered as, you know, them uh, battling each other? All right. So look, you look at the, the FTX, I think the FTX digital markets, which is the, the Bahamas entry, entered into provisional liquidation. So you enter into process before the chapter 11 itself. Okay. And it was, um, it's kind of, I think it sits under the FTX trading entity. So it's in the FTX international group. And what we understand, what we seem to understand from here is that there are sizable assets sitting in this Bahamas entity, allegedly under control of the Bahamian government. But let's, let's go, let's go to that later. Now, if you're an FTX US and you put a whole group to chapter 11, Right. I, I think I'm fairly certain the Bahamas entity is meant to be the Chapter 11 as well. Well, um, should be. But assuming you're administrating the bankruptcy of the entire group, obviously you want to have all of the assets of the group so that you can run the restructuring in the US. Now, if certain assets are... So, so in, in a sort of ideal world, what happens is you do a Chapter 11, the Bahamas government, the Bahamas legal system recognizes the Chapter 11 and says, all right, we're going to cooperate with you in any way, shape, and form, right? You're running the chapter 11. You tell us to do a clock. You, you tell us to go ahead and do all this stuff. We're going to go ahead and enforce your will in the Bahamas. So that's generally how cross-border insolvency works. With other jurisdictions, um, obviously I'm very familiar with the UK, 
you have this thing known as sort of mutual recognition, uh, mutual recognition treaties. And a lot of it starts looking a lot like international diplomacy, right? Because when you're looking at companies that span the entire globe, your insolvencies will span the entire globe as well. And for, for insolvency and restructuring to be somewhat sensible, someone has to lead it. And there is, first of all, there's a lot of money in, in leading it just for, for, for the country itself. And that's why you see certain countries sort of start developing as what you call restructuring hubs. Uh, the US is obviously one of them, chapter 11. The UK is another one. Singapore is starting to become more of a restructuring hub as well. So, so, so yeah, um, there's this issue of, of, of cross-border recognition because it only works if you all recognize each other's um, efforts and each other's ability to administer assets, um, which are within the jurisdiction and also sort of without, because we recognize that, you know, you are the main proceeding, what it call is the center of main interest, um, especially using the sort of UK uh, terminology, center of main interest, which means you, know, you get to run, you get to run this, 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 this insolvency. And so how does it get decided kind of which one becomes the uh, main one? Good question. <laughs> this has happened before. It's this case called Bahamar which I tweeted about earlier, um, that someone should look at it. Because in this case, Bahamar, we had pretty much, I, mean, I would say exactly the same thing. It wasn't as much of a dumpster fire, but it was a, it was, I think it was a real estate development in the Bahamas. And chapter 11 was filed. And, but the Bahamas entity also entered into process in the Bahamas. And in that case, um, the, the, the sort of Bahamas sort of won jurisdiction because the U.S. said, look, it's, it's pointless for us to, to, to do anything here um, because all the assets are in the Bahamas and even if we made any um, decisions with regards to the assets near the Bahamas, the Bahamas are not going to recognize us. So we just dismissed the chapter that I'm filing. Very, very different case, of course, because now we're looking at a completely, completely different situation with a company that, that with assets sort of worldwide and at least part of it is in the U.S. Perhaps the more interesting thing are that, is that there are certain allegations being made and this emergency motion regarding um, the role of the Bahaban government in India. Now, if you recall, Sam was saying, look, we're going to let Bahamas people withdraw their money because, you know, because the Bahamas regulators told me to do so. The Bahamas, I think it was the Securities Commission, came on and said, we never said anything like that. But now this is being repeated by the new CEO of FTX that that the Bahamian government may have had in all of this. And when you say that, you mean like in the malfeasance at FTX? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Let me, um, right, let me read this out here. Right. In addition, in connection with investigating a hack on Sunday, November 13th, Mr. Bankman Freedom, Mr. Wang stated in recorded verified text that Bahamian regulators instructed that post-petition transfers of debtor assets be made by Mr. Wang and Mr. Bankman Freed who the debtors understand were both effectively in the custody of Bahamas authorities and that such assets were custodied on fire blocks under control of the Bahamian government. The debtors have credible evidence that the Bahamian government is responsible for directing unauthorized access to the debtor system for the purpose of obtaining digital assets of the debtor that took place after the commencement of these cases, i.e. the Chapter 11. The appointment of the Joint Provisional Liquidators and recognition of the Chapter 15 case are thus in serious question. It appears that the automatic stay has been flaunted by a government actor, no less. This is no time to be arguing over venue. So that's a direct quote from something that the new CEO has filed in the U.S. courts. It's pretty wow. damning, isn't it? 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> so, but then in that kind of situation, what do they like force Fireblocks to return the money? Or I, I don't know, like, you know, how, once the money's been transferred, what, what can be done? I, I, I really just couldn't understand, answer this question. Like, it's, it's absolutely wild to me, right? Because if, if you're saying that, if, if it's one thing to say that the, um, to, to say that uh, someone in the Bahamas or the Bahamas company isn't cooperating, right? Because if they're not cooperating, what do you do? You go ahead, as long as you get it recognized in Bahamas, you do your chapter 11, do whatever the hell you want of it. You go to the Bahamas and call an order and you, you're going to recognize this. So please carry out uh, on what's been agreed. But now what we're saying is that the Bahamas government is involved. <laughs> that's, that's a whole different ballgame, man. It's a whole wow. different ballgame. <laughs> and what, so what are you actually going to do if you're, if you're the United States bankruptcy court here? Okay, cool. We're going to have the chapter 11 anyway. Fuck your chapter 15. We're not going to, you know, screw this. We're not going to recognize your thing going on in the Bahamas. But wait a minute. The Bahamas isn't going to recognize the thing you have going on in there either. Shit. <laughs> Where does that leave us? Yeah, and now they have all these assets. Yeah, because they're sitting on the assets, right? Right. So, so what do you think happens next? I think, I think we grab the popcorn and wait and see, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's not something that you can't have like a lot of historical precedent for, right? Where, uh, where allegedly a government authority seizes assets and refuses to cooperate with another government or another jurisdiction. I, I think, did I say earlier, I have no words because I feel like I'm in the same position again, but like in terms of kind of formal procedure type stuff, what would be the next step? They're trying to get it. They're trying to get the sort of chapter 15 sort of transferred to the, uh, to Delaware, which is where the chapter 11 is filed. And then they're probably going to sort of have a, have a bit of a fight over it. And then we'll see what the U.S. court says in all the circumstances. We wait for a bit more information to come out from the Bahamas. Um, but the, the interesting bit sort of takeaway from, from us, I think, uh, for, for sort of listeners, I guess, and, and just general people, is that Sam seems to really want the Bahamas to win. They, he wants for jurisdiction to be in the Bahamas. And this is interesting to me because it, it, it sort of shows you what he seems to have in mind. And Sam does not seem to have given up altogether. And he seems to think from some messages that they leave, or published that he thinks he can still save the company. That is likely the reason why. I'm not sure if this Chapter 15 thing is, is being driven by him or being driven by the government, being driven by the uh, provisional liquidators. Um, but for him, what happened to the Chapter 11 is that he's out because he's resigned. He could have stayed on, but thank Christ, he's out. So he's out. He's got a professional in. He's got a professional in who says that, you know, he's unsophisticated, complete out of his depth. And uh, it's a complete shit show, right? And everything that he is saying is not on behalf of the company. He's completely out. That's what uh, John Ray has been saying. Truly speaking, in the Bahamas, he's kind of in a similar position because you've got a joint profession, uh, provision liquidator in there. It's a professional. So it's obviously a professional coming in here to sort of secure the assets of the company and keep things running along. But in a sort of provisional liquidation, it's, it's still not completely over. And it's open if... For Sam to suddenly come up with, hey, I've got like $8 billion and I can now take this company out of joint provisional liquidation. And that seems to be what he is trying to do. He seems to be trying to save his company outside of the US because he's been disenfranchised in the US. 
Hmm. Okay. And wait, and so just to connect the dots, so you're saying that you think that chapter 15 is being driven by Sam? I, I don't think it's, I'm, I'm not sure who's driving it. It's been noted here in, in the statement that, you know, John Ray has spoken with the John Provincial Liquidators and they didn't tell us they were going to do a chapter 15. So I think it's sort of hit them by surprise as well. And in, in many ways, it sort of hit everybody by surprise. <laughs> Like everything else in this story, yeah. But we but we can see from the messages that Sam has has this sort of come out right, which is he said, you know what was the biggest single fuck up, and the guy whoever his first one says oh, and he says the one thing everyone told me to do, everything would be about seventy percent fixed right now if I had it, chapter eleven, and he says we get there if both either Gary or Nishat comes back, presumably he needs a bit more support on the side right now, and B. We win a jurisdictional battle versus Delaware. So it looks like he really wants the Bahamas to win because he thinks, rightly or wrongly, that he can somehow fundraise and get a deal done <laughs> outside of the chapter 11, which seems a bit insane to me. It, it could well be the case that he's just completely off his rocker. I, I was going to say who knows, but it's very unlikely because he was a very successful entrepreneur, right? His face was on all these magazines, he was being, um, he was a media darling, etc. For someone like that, it's incredibly easy to raise money. And he probably still has that in his mind because I saw this sort of leaked term sheet that was going around, I think it was on the Financial Times or something, where it was like pretty amateur kind of crappy terms wh where he sort of still felt like he was in charge because he's just used to that, right? You're used to people throwing money at you when, when money is cheap, um, obviously in the, in the, in the previous years, when you're the fastest group, one of the fastest growing businesses in the world, where you're the face of crypto in uh, the West, essentially. But it's now very, very different. It's a very different ballgame when now you're insolvent. The way you do fundraising is different. The way you structure a deal is different. You can no longer go out doing, structuring a deal, going, promising someone infinite upside, et cetera, because they know that you're in trouble. Now, there's a whole new balance sheet. The way you fix it, the sort of financing you're looking at, the sort of funding you're looking at is very, very different. Yeah, I commented to someone that when everyone, you know, thought he was the golden boy, he raised $2 billion. So now that his reputation is definitely in a different place, I, I was like, how does he think he's going to raise $8 billion? <laughs> But anyway, who knows? There have been so many crazy twists to this story. Um, you know, I'm not going to, not going to say it's impossible well, Wasi, this has been such an amazing discussion. I'm uh, sure that you're going to be back soon because apparently there's all kinds of twists and turns with this bankruptcy. Thanks again for coming on Unchained. No worries. Happy, happy to chat. And I'm sure we'll speak again soon as more information comes out. <laughs> yes. Hopefully in like a week and not tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. Alameda CEO confesses to using customer funds, and SPF may have used a backdoor. 
The New York Times reported that Caroline Ellison, the CEO of Alameda Research, declared in a company-wide meeting that the trading firm used customer funds from the now-bankrupt FTX to repay its loans. Ellison stated that the earlier crypto collapses caused some of Alameda's loans to be recalled. According to her, the firm didn't have enough money to repay those loans, so it agreed with FTX executives to transfer FTX customer funds to repay them. Reuters reported that Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of both Alameda and FTX, built a backdoor to FTX to change financial records and move funds to Alameda without triggering internal compliance checks. The news agency said that SPF could also use the tool to modify records so the state of affairs wouldn't be visible to external auditors. Bankman-Fried denied the allegations. In an interview with Vox, SPF blamed messy accounting and margin exchange for the collapse of FTX. Based on the first declaration in the bankruptcy and SPF's admission to Vox that customer deposits went straight to Alameda, the co-mingling may have begun far earlier than several months ago. FTX failure sparks crypto lending contagion. FTX's collapse quickly spread to the rest of the crypto lending market. Genesis Global Capital, the lending arm of Genesis Global Trading, paused withdrawals, citing unprecedented market turmoil. Genesis is one of the largest institutional lending companies that services crypto platforms offering yields to retail investors. If Genesis fails, customer funds held on these platforms could be at risk. For that very reason, Gemini, one of the more well-regulated crypto exchanges in the U.S., warned its customers that they might suffer delays when withdrawing their assets from its earned product, which lets users earn yields on their crypto. However, Gemini reassured customers that all funds on the exchange are safe. Retail crypto lender BlockFi paused withdrawals and deposits after FTX filed for bankruptcy, and it's preparing to file for bankruptcy proceedings on its own, according to the Wall Street Journal. The lender received a $400 million line of credit from FTX US in July. The block revealed that back in July, crypto lender Nexo, disclosure, a former sponsor, made an offer to acquire BlockFi in a deal worth $850 million. Contagion spreads across the globe. Japanese crypto exchange Liquid Global, which is owned by FTX, halted fiat and crypto withdrawals from the platform. Salt Lending, a crypto lender, also paused withdrawals, and Bank to the Future scrapped its deal to buy the company. Plenty of major investors in FTX, including Paradigm, Sequoia, and Tomasic, have written down their investments, in some cases to zero. Others affected include hedge fund Multicoin Capital, which held a $25 million stake in FTX through its $430 million venture fund. Bankrupt crypto lender Celsius, whom Alameda owes $12 million, and troubled crypto exchange Vault, which had $10 million of funds in FTX. The Ontario Teachers Pension Plan also held $95 million in FTX, but said it will have a limited impact. House to call hearing on FTX as regulators announced investigations. Lawmakers and regulators haven't ignored the exchange's startling collapse. The House Financial Services Committee calls on Bankman Free to testify about the fallout of FTX in a hearing to take place in December. The hearing will examine how FTX blew up and to work out the broader consequences for the digital asset ecosystem. California's Department of Financial Protection and Innovation also announced an investigation into the failure of FTX, as did prosecutors from the Department of Justice. U.S. authorities are also investigating the role Binance played in the collapse of FTX. Changping Zhao, or CZ, the CEO of Binance, triggered a liquidity crisis on FTX when he announced that he would sell the company's holdings of FTT, FTX's exchange token. Binance is reportedly cooperating with authorities on the case. 
Lawmakers use FTX's example to regulate the industry. In addition to tanking the markets, the implosion of FTX grabbed the attention of American lawmakers, who said that it proves that the industry needs stricter regulations to protect retail investors. The anti-crypto U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren said that the collapse of FTX must be a wake-up call for Congress and financial regulators to hold this industry and its executives accountable. Additionally, Warren, together with Senator Dick Durbin, sent a letter to SBF demanding information on its shocking collapse. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, known for her hardline stance against crypto, also called for more effective oversight over the crypto markets. Senator Pat Toomey, a former guest on Unchained who has been vocal about his opposition to the SEC's enforcement actions on crypto, said that the crypto industry has been operating with ambiguity because regulators don't provide a proper framework and lawmakers refuse to act. After spending months talking to regulators and lawmakers, SPF told Vox, fuck them, they make everything worse. He later apologized for his comments and said that some regulators command impressive knowledge. Binance forms a recovery fund as exchanges rush to prove reserves. Exchange giant Binance announced it will form a recovery fund to stem the contagion from FTX's implosion. Crypto exchange OKX plans to fill another fund with $100 million to provide struggling projects with liquidity. CZ said the exchange also plans to implement a new proof-of-reserves protocol developed by Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin. Last Friday, Binance disclosed that it held $69 billion in assets, but it didn't use Buterin's protocol to prove the figures. Nine other exchanges announced similar plans after Zhao published his proposal. The effort should bring more transparency to exchanges, but proof-of-reserves only shows how much an exchange holds, not how much it owes to other people. Without that information, it's impossible to know whether the exchange has enough liquidity to back customer assets. Speaking of exchange, Coindesk reported that Binance US is preparing to bid for bankrupt crypto lender Voyager. After the news broke, Voyager's token, VGX, jumped by over 50%. Audit provides transparency on LFG and TFL funds. The Luna Foundation Guard, or LFG, the nonprofit created to develop the Terra ecosystem, published an audit on how the foundation and Terraform Labs fought to defend the UST peg during Terra's crash in May. According to the report from Auditor J.S. Held, LFG spent $2.8 billion, mostly in Bitcoin, to defend the UST peg. The audit showed that Terraform Labs spent $613 million of its own money in its failed attempt to prevent UST from falling into a death spiral. The founder, Do Kwan, said, It is natural to suspect fraud when something goes wrong, but if we sweep all failures in crypto as scams and say there are some bad apples but everything else is fine, then we never have opportunities to learn from our mistake. FTX hacker becomes a whale. Last Friday night, after FTX announced its bankruptcy, an unknown person that many suspect is an FTX insider hacked the exchange's systems. The wallet tied to the attack on FTX swapped some BNB tokens and stablecoins for ETH. The hack doesn't appear to have been well thought out. The, the attacker lost significant amounts of their holdings on several transactions. They've hastily tried to do whatever they can with the funds, seemingly without much of a plan, Miguel Morel, CEO of Arkham, a crypto intelligence firm, told Coindesk. Despite that, they became the 31st largest Ethereum holder, currently holding 241,000 Ether, worth about $300 million at press time. Was DeFi the only winner? Chaos is a ladder, used to say famous Games of Thrones character Littlefinger. Even though the effects of FTX have been catastrophic for many, there were also some winners. This week, decentralized exchange Uniswap beat Coinbase and became the second largest venue for ETH trading.
And Ledger, a hardware wallet provider, saw its biggest sales day ever following the collapse of FTX. Both achievements perhaps signal that users are finally moving to non-custodial and decentralized platforms. Time for fun bits! In a Morning Brew video on TikTok, the tale of SPF and FTX, he plays every character from SPF himself to an everyday investor to a crypto bro named Captain Laser, who snorts ice crystals. To bolster his credentials to the investor, SPF sets himself apart from Captain Laser by saying, Now take a look at me, I don't sleep or bathe. The investor is increasingly confused as he watches numerous investors put money into FTX, and he's absolutely baffled when he hears Sam's pitch for face tissue tokens, or FTT. As the frenzy increases until SPF is seen testifying in front of Congress, saying, I and only I can save crypto, a shadowy figure appears. And it's Binance saying, oh, only you? I created you. (laughs) And the hooded Binance figure lights his face tissue tokens on fire. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Wasi Lawyer and the first declaration of FTX's bankruptcy case, check out the show notes for this episode. Give us your input on Unchained. We want to hear your feedback on the podcast, our premium offering, and more. Visit surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2022. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pelchard, Juan Aranovich, Sam Sriram, Pamajimdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.